0: To God's Word. We are teaching, as is our custom here, through a book of the Bible. Because we are going through the book of Ephesians, which was a letter from the Apostle Paul, we slow down a bit. We approach different portions of the Word a little bit differently. Most recently, we went through the book of Genesis together, and we tended to go through about a chapter a week. That's because of the kind of literature it is. It's it's historical narrative and so you take big chunks and you try to get the main point of those big chunks. But whenever you come to to these portions of the word that we call the epistles, the letters, we slow down a little bit. We try to carefully think through each detail and how they work logically together. And so we are going to do that again today in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. We, We started this last week, and we are going to complete this section today. I began last week by likening the feel, the tone of these verses to interacting with someone who is a very deliberate encourager, the kind of person that knows you pretty well and cares enough to affirm you and encourage you. And as I said to you last week, if you do know people like that who are deliberate, purposeful affirmers, it's really nice at the beginning. It's nice to be thanked for things that you have done. It's nice to be encouraged for the things that you're good at, especially if you use those gifts to bless other people. I mean, let's face it, it's, it's nice to be noticed. Most of us feel pretty often like we're just not noticed and and not appreciated. But on those rare occasions where somebody takes the time to affirm us, to thank us, to encourage us, it it feels really good for about 60 seconds. And after about 60 seconds, it it gets a little bit uncomfortable because we're not used to it. We're not used to talking to each other that way. It can feel a a bit awkward after a while, and then we just want to change the subject and sort of refer back to our our default things that we talk about the weather and the buckeyes and that's what we talk about as central ohioans which is miserable and and empty most of the time but that's where we kind of default so after a while after the person spends time affirming you you can feel a bit awkward also if we're being honest you can reflect upon that conversation and think does this person really feel this way about me now especially if it's Maybe somebody you're close to. Maybe not just an acquaintance, but, but maybe your spouse. For Valentine's Day, Whitney and I went out to dinner, and we were sitting there talking, and uh, she started doing this for me. One of my love languages is uh, words of affirmation. I like to do it, and I like to receive it. And so my wife knows this about me. And so she started affirming me. And so after about 60 seconds, it started to get uncomfortable. And she was super sincere and, and it was nice. It was nice to hear. And you know, we're having a nice dinner, even though my steak was not quite right. But that's another story. And, and so, you know, it was nice to hear. But after about 60 seconds, it just gets uncomfortable. And so our default topics really aren't the weather or the Buckeyes. Our default discussion is our kids. You guys know what that's like whenever you're sitting at dinner with your spouse, and maybe you haven't been out in a while, and you forget how to talk to each other, so you just talk about the kids. It's kind of where we go sometimes. Um, but she just kept going. And, and so not only did I feel kind of awkward, um, she was being so kind that I was like, you don't really believe that about me. You don't really love me that way. Now, we've been together for a long time, married for 18 years and together a little bit longer than that, but, but she does. But it's, it's hard to believe because when it's, when it's all said and done, I know what's inside of me. I know that I'm, if I'm being honest, often unlovely, unlovable, unlovable. Um, Not only did I marry way high above my station when I married her, I've not always been the perfect husband. I've not always been perfectly kind and selfless. I struggle with that. But to have someone like that who loves me, despite all my flaws, knowing all my flaws, is the best gift God has ever given me. And this text, to a much greater degree, makes us feel that way. Because in this text, God tells us that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, God the Trinity, loves us with an unbreakable, forever love. And the difficult thing about this text is that it's easy to gloss it over, to read it quickly and to move on, and to have some vague notion that God loves us. We grew up singing this. If we grew up in church, we knew at least two songs maybe three. We knew uh, Jesus loves all the children, and and we we sang all the, like, the little questionable ethnic things that went along with that. Um, And and then we sang Father Abraham, who had many sons, and then you did all, like, the hand motions and stuff. If you didn't grow up in church, we, we can, like, have a little session afterward, and we can teach you these songs afterward. And then we sang Jesus loves me, And even people maybe who didn't grow up in religious settings have heard that song before. So as a little kid, you kind of believe that. But once you hit 12, 13, 14, you start experiencing the world and struggling with whether or not you're going to worship God or other things. And you begin committing worse sins, sins of deliberate rebellion where you don't necessarily really believe that God loves you anymore because you know how how difficult it is to choose Him and worship Him and be faithful, and you know the corruption that's inside of you, somewhere along in those years, you begin to, to doubt that God loves you. So these verses are not served well by glossing over them so that we have this vague religious Christian-esque kind of notion that God loves. These verses are written to be poured over, to be meditated upon, and to be be believed, to be trusted, to, to be the bedrock of our faith on the brightest days and on the darkest. And in light of that, let's read them together. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, Ephesians 3.14, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. May God bless to us the reading of his word. This text, if we're being honest with our existential condition, with, with, with whom we know ourselves to be, this text seems too good to be true. Because in our moments of lucidity, in our moments of of honesty, we recognize that that we aren't that lovable. Now, we can put on a facade, we can play the game, we can posture in such a way that people have the best notion of us, but, but even if we can get away with that, even if we can get away with making people think that we've got it all together, we know still the things that are inside of us. Even Paul who wrote this, knew this. Paul could say at various places in his letters, follow me, mimic me, copy me, my pattern of righteousness and obedience, live like that. And then yet at other times, he could say that he was the foremost of sinners. It's an interesting sort of irony that the more we grow in faith, the more we become in our walk with Christ, there's a corresponding acknowledgement that we are still really sinful. Here's how it works. I'm 40 now. I love more selflessly than I did when I was 30. But the more I understand now at 40 the love of God the more I realize how far short I fall of that. It's an interesting irony that as we mature in faith, our understanding of God increases. And those signs of maturity show up and we become more sort of righteous in our deeds. There's always an awareness that we fall so far short. So we can be more mature than we used to be, in a sense, more holy than we used to be, more sanctified, to use a very religious word. But all the while, know that, that we don't deserve the least of God's mercies. We are still prideful, we still lust, we still struggle with undivided worship. And then when we read a text like this, if we slow down and really think about what it's saying, it seems too good to be true. And so last week, for the sake of review, We said that we may rest in the great love of our God. This is where Paul has been driving at for the first three chapters of this letter to the church in Ephesus. Chapters 4 through 6 are going to be some very practical exhortations about the way that they live together as a church, the way they live together in families. I invite you to come back for that because it's going to be very practical for the way that you walk with Christ daily. But he he does not get into chapters 4 through 6 practical holy living, the way that we lead our normal daily lives. He doesn't get into that until he takes the time painstakingly in chapters 1 through 3 to drive to this point that we find ourselves at now. And the point of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is to convince this church that they have been richly blessed in Christ, that positionally, if they have placed their faith in Christ, that they have all they need and far, far more. In fact, we saw back in chapter 1 that they had been given an inheritance. And this wasn't just a maybe thing. God predestined this, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. By what means did this inheritance come about? How was it that these sons and daughters of God could be brought into an inheritance with the Almighty, the Creator of all things? Because in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says that in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So here's God's perspective. He's looking at a broken, sinful, willfully rebellious world. Knowing full well that it would turn out that way, he and the son made an agreement before the foundation of the world to rescue some of those fallen sinners. And in his predestining love, He sent His Son to take the punishment that we deserved so that we might receive the blessings that the Father showers upon the Son. The gospel is upside-down thinking. That the God that we offended took our place, Brett read about this a bit ago in 1 John chapter 4, that Jesus became our propitiation, which is a very big theological word, which basically means... That Jesus took the wrath of God in our place. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took our punishment and took our sin upon himself so that we might get his righteousness in return. That is upside down. But that's the gospel. That's the good news. And Paul has been driving now through this explanation of all the privileges that we've been given in Christ now to this point in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, to say, very basically, to sum it up, God loves you. And I think we should pause a bit to ask ourselves, is that really true? Because, Because I think somewhere around those early teenage years, we stopped believing it. Even if we can give the best theological answers. I mean, I probably can go toe-to-toe with a lot of pretty decent theologians. I know the Bible relatively well. I've, I've read the good guys out there. You can ask me the big words and I can define them. But if you were to pin me down and say, do you really believe God loves you? I could give you the right theological answer. But if I'm being honest, I don't always feel it. And because of how sinful I still am, I don't always really believe it. Which is why I scramble around trying to buy them off. We can see this in our horizontal relationships with each other. Even when our spouse tells us how much they love us, some of us wonder if if they'll really hang with us. Perhaps this is because we have been abandoned in the past. Perhaps we didn't grow up in the kind of nuclear families in the past where, where mom and dad showed us what abiding, faithful love looked like. And so now we, we wonder all the time whenever the next shoe is going to drop. We, we peer over our shoulders waiting for the next person to, to abandon us. And then we, we take our horizontal experiences, the disappointments in our horizontal relationships, and we apply them back vertically to God. But that's why Paul writes these words. He writes these words so we will know, and he writes these words so that we will believe. And so we said last week that we can rest in the great love of our God because we are sons and daughters of God the Father. He's given us his name. Justin and Katie gave little Marley Kate their name, both sides of the family. Why did they do that? Their adoptive love was driven by the adoptive love of God, who caused his son, his eternal son, temporarily to be orphaned so that he might bring them back into his family. This love that chooses to take rebels and make them sons and daughters instead is astounding. So we may rest in the love of God because God has made us his own. He created us. He restored us through his adoptive love. And we may rest in the great love of our God because we are strengthened or comforted by his spirit. We see this in verse 16. One of the beautiful things about Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 19 is that God the Trinity, we've already referenced this, shows up in his fullness. So we believe in one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And as we admitted last week, of course, this is mysterious. We cannot fully explain it. And any illustration or metaphor we try to use to explain the Trinity always falls short. But the Word tells us, God's Word tells us that He is one but exists in three persons. And each person has loved us to the fullest, the love of god the father the love of god the spirit and as we will explore in just a moment the love of god the son have been leveraged on our behalf so let's think logically and simply for just a minute if god is all powerful and he is if god is all loving and he is i'll give you a couple of theological labels God's all-powerfulness, we call omnipotence. To make up a word, his his all-lovingness, we could call omnibenevolence. You could wow your neighbors with that one this week. If we can marry those two things together, his, his omnipotence and his omnibenevolence, and omni means all. That, that these things exist in him in perfection and fullness with no limits. If such a God, full of power, without limits, full of love, with no measure, if such a God would love us, what do we lack? And, and that's what Paul's been driving at. And so now, for our today, we will focus more on verses 17 to 19. We covered verses 14 through 16 last week, if you'd like to. Refer back to that. You can look at our website. But for today, verses 17-19, to we will focus on the love of the Son. So God loves us fully. Father, Spirit, and now in verses 17-19, to the Son. In fact, there's a connection between the work of the Spirit and the love of the Son. Let's think of the logic here. Paul says in verse 16 that according to the riches of His glory, the glory of the Father he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what is the work of the spirit? What is the work of the comforter? The work of the spirit is that we will know the love of Jesus, verses 17 through 19. That Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, being rooted and grounded in love. So Paul prays that Each member of the Trinity would do their work or that we would know the love of, of each member of the Trinity. The Father who is the initiator of all things, the one who made us and restored us through the Son, that he would cause his spirit to help us to believe what is true about Jesus' love for us. This is how Trinitarian faith looks a bit more practical. Evangelical Christians must believe in the Trinity or they cannot be true evangelical Christians. It's one of the bedrock notions of evangelical faith. But as we've talked about before, I think it's tragically true that we can, from a theological point of view, believe in the Trinity but have no practical conception about how it connects to life. And so Paul helps us see it here. In this context, the Spirit is given to comfort us to, to know the love of Jesus That Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. This means that Jesus has taken up residence inside of his own. Those who have trusted him. Let's talk about this concept of faith for just a minute that we see at the beginning of verse 17. Paul says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The Bible resists any notion of universalism, that that all people are saved from the wrath of God. God's love, in one way or another, is discriminatory. That is to say, to take some of the connotation out of that word, He doesn't love everyone equally. That is a popular notion in secular humanism, but it's just not biblical. Biblical. You can't explain the crucifixion of Jesus if you believe that God loves everybody equally. Here's what I mean. There are people who choose to persist in sin, who reject God. God does not love those people the same way that he loves those for whom Christ died, or, from our perspective, those who have placed their faith in Jesus. So herein is a call to faith. God loves those who have placed their faith in his son. And this isn't just believing certain facts about Jesus. Theologians distinguish between three basic layers of faith. I won't give you the nerdy words behind them, but the first, to explain it simply, is to know certain facts about Jesus. The second is to assent to the truth of those facts. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we see in the book of James that even the demons believe these things about Jesus. The third stage of faith, which we would call saving faith, is where you place your confidence in those facts, knowing them, assenting to the truth, and staking your claim on them that there is no other way to God, there is no other hope for life, there is no other path of salvation. This is what saving faith looks like. These are the kind of people that, on their worst days and on their best days, when they might be despairing or they might be prideful, their only confession is Jesus Christ. They have ceased trying to buy God off through righteous actions, they have ceased trying to hide in the darkness from their own sin and instead fully admit their faults and their sinfulness their debt to God, and turn to Jesus who paid their debt. And so, to pause for just a moment, I ask you to consider that. Which stage of faith might you be at today? You might know certain facts about Christianity, about the gospel, the good news. Have you moved beyond that to the point that you have assented to the truthfulness of those facts? And most importantly, have you moved beyond that to the third stage where you have not only understood the facts and assented to their veracity, their truthfulness, but have trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. The one who substituted himself in your place, took the wrath of God, became a propitiation for you. And who will, if you will trust Him, take your sin and give you His righteousness and restore you to God? Have you trusted Jesus today? If not, perhaps today is the day of salvation for you. It is a free gift. You cannot earn it. We've already seen that in chapter 2. We are saved by grace through faith, which in itself is a gift. So I plead with the Holy Spirit now that if you have not trusted Jesus in faith that you would today because he is your only hope. And what Paul asks here in this text is that the Spirit will remind these people, these people who had trusted Jesus, that, that, that he is inside of them. There's, there's a mystical union with Jesus, he with us, us with him, and that we would hang on by faith. That is to say, it's, it's not a one-time event, but that we trust Jesus every single day. It's, it's not as though, this is very important for living the Christian life, it's not as though we have this once-in-time moment where we pray some sort of odd mystical prayer and ask Jesus to come into our hearts, which can be some dangerous language without some definition. And then we, we leave that off for when we were seven, and then for the rest of our lives we try to muster up enough strength to, to choose righteousness and deny sinfulness. That's not the way it works. Paul has been driving to this point in the text to come to the place where he can say, for the initiation of salvation you need Jesus, and you need Jesus every day. And he clarifies this because at the end of verse 17 he says that we being rooted and grounded in love This is an ongoing process. Our roots go deeper into our understanding of the gospel, the good news. And then the bedrock or the foundation of our faith grows in in solidity and strength. So he uses two metaphors here, an agrarian one and an architectural one, both of which are important, and and they demonstrate the the concept of, of something being solid, of of it, of it lasting, of it, of it not being shaken. At the end of the warm season last year, we had some maple trees put in our backyard. They are not very thick, but I don't know, they're two and a half inches in diameter or whatever. And so as we were picking them out at Oakland Nursery, paying far more than I wanted to pay, I asked the guy, how quickly will they grow and and will they last? And he said, well, the ones that grow more quickly um, have a tendency to snap more easily. And so that didn't sound very good to me. And so the tendency then is to maybe pick one that's really small because you're not investing a lot of money in it, or you can get one that's really thick, but then you spend a fortune. So an agrarian or a, a, uh, a natural metaphor makes sense to us, something that's rooted deeply that that has strength to it, will withstand the, the storms of life. This architectural metaphor is interesting as we're considering this property and building right now as a church. I'm learning all kinds of new things uh, about buildings. One of the things that is encouraging to us is that the buildings that we're looking at seem to have pretty strong foundations. That's one of the things that happens whenever you look at older properties as foundations solid and strong. And so therefore this This makes sense to us as well. These metaphors weren't just true for people 2,000 years ago. They, They communicate to us today as well. How can we have lasting faith? How can we have the kind of faith that persists even when the storms come? How can a family that we love endure such tragedy not once but twice and still confess that they trust in Jesus and sit here with us today? How can that be? Because day by day and week by week and year by year, that family has been believing the truth of the gospel and their roots have gone deep and their foundation has held true because God's spirit has kept them. And that's why we sit here today because we don't know what's coming tomorrow, do we? Life is brief and life is difficult and filled with pain. What will Monday bring? Our 2018 Or what will come when our parents begin dying? Because that's coming for this church. We are entering into a phase now where our parents are getting older. What will happen whenever the first one of us gets cancer? What happens whenever we're doing more funerals than we're having births? Tragedy will come, my friends. Will we stand? Paul wants these people to know that not just in the bright days does God love them but to prepare them for when the dark days come that they can stand. We have been united to God, the Son, who gave himself for us. And we must continue to grow in this truth. Paul goes on to say in verse 18 that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. At the end of the day, Christianity cannot be reduced to knowing certain things. But it is not less than that. Let me say that again. Christianity, when it's all said and done, cannot be reduced to a certain set of facts. It's more than that. But it is not less than that. And that is why we take our time going word by word through the Bible. Not just so we will stand in the day of trial and darkness, but, but so that we will know what is true, and we will believe every day that God who made us and the God who restored us through His Son loves us. Unless we misunderstand here in verse 18, Paul basically takes every point of the compass. Breadth, length. Height, depth, up, down, left, right, all around, north, south, east, west, however you want to think of it. The psalmist says in Psalm 139 that we cannot flee from the love of God if we take the wings of the morning or dwell in the uttermost part of the sea. Even there, He is with us. I wonder if Paul had that in mind, Psalm 139, whenever he wrote Ephesians chapter 3. Jesus loves you, let's look at this practically, from the beginning until the end. Jesus loves you on your best days when you choose righteousness, and Jesus loves you on your worst days when you choose sinfulness. Jesus loves you knowing your past. Jesus loves you knowing what comes in the future. Jesus loves you knowing all the external things that you have done. Jesus loves you with all the internal things that only you and he know. Jesus loves you when you're hot. Jesus loves you when you're cold. Jesus loves you when you would not have chosen him. Paul says elsewhere in his writings that no one would choose God. No one seeks for God. And yet Jesus came anyway. Jesus did not come to meet us halfway. That's a popular notion in evangelical thought, but it's not biblical. Jesus does not meet sinners halfway. Jesus went all the way. Jesus did not come to the earth seeking to make a partial covenant with people who would come alongside him and agree with him. Jesus went to the cross paying the penalty for sinners even when they didn't want him. So the reality is, no matter where you find yourself today on the spectrum of faith, you are sitting here today considering, I pray, the claims of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, who made you, who knows you intimately, and who had every right to judge you, but instead came and took the judgment so you don't have to. And this, I think, explains breadth and length and height and depth. And just so we can be reminded, we saw already today, back in chapter 1, verse 7, that we were redeemed by blood. This was a costly love, a sacrificial love. And this is the kind of love that Jesus has given to us. Jesus, verse 19 loves us with a love that surpasses knowledge so that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Jesus restores us to God. This is a supernatural kind of knowledge, a knowledge that the world that has not placed their faith in Jesus cannot comprehend, that they ridicule. I wish that... In our relationships with people who have not embraced the gospel, not even, who have not embraced Christianity, could hear that kind of language out of us. And that we're not the stereotypical holier-than-thou kind of people. That we are fully aware of our sinfulness even more than they are. And our hope does not lie in making the right decisions and having the perfect, cleaned-up families our hope lies in Jesus, who offers us cleansing, and who took our place instead. So, Paul has been moving toward this point in the letter, describing in great detail great detail, the ways that God has loved us and the blessings that we have in Christ. And now the capstone of that argument is here at the end of chapter 3. And what's the summation of all that argument? Before he ever gets into what we should do, how we should act, how we should live together. What's the summation of Paul's argument? The summation is that we may be at rest because we are sons and daughters of God the Father. We are strengthened or comforted by God the Spirit to know that we've been reunited to God through God the Son. We have been brought back to God the Father through the Son who gave himself for us. We see in 1 John 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And in verse 16 of that same chapter, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We won't take time to turn back there today, but I'd like you to jot this passage down because it would be a great way to respond in meditation upon our teaching time from today. These are the verses that Brett read to us earlier. John says in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love and he sent his son to be that propitiation that we've talked about today for our sins. God has proven his love for us by slaughtering his own son in our place, we might be given life. So we rest in the great love of our God because as we learned last week, we are sons and daughters of God strengthened by his spirit. And as we saw today in verses 17 through 19, we have been united to God the Son Who gave himself for us? God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son love you. And whether you feel it or not, it is true. How do we respond to this? This is probably the most important thing I'll put up in front of you. We must pray for each other to rest in the gospel. Because the truth of the matter is no matter how much time we spend on these few verses, we will start disbelieving it again. So how do we persist in love? How do we how do we hang on? How do we make it through the dark days? How do we how do we persevere? How do we have more than just a faith that, that springs up quickly and lasts for a few days, but the kind of faith that lasts for years until the end, through thick and thin, through sunlight and storm? How? We pray. That's what Paul's doing here in verses 14 through 19. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. You have to think Paul prayed this for himself, but he prayed it for them. What's truly the best way you can love your brothers and sisters here in this church family? Pray this prayer. You can personalize it a bit if you want, but but the best way you can serve your brothers and sisters is to pray that they will believe these things. So this has to become a lifestyle. This isn't just something you do after you hear a sermon like this. It's it's something that must become normal, regular. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we are to pray without ceasing. That cannot mean that we put on some sort of strange monk-like clothing and lock ourselves up in a room and never eat or drink and we spend the rest of our days here and here doing that. We can't do that. We have to work jobs and raise kids and cut the grass and all that other kind of stuff. Paul means that we live in a spirit of prayer. And this should form the fabric of much of our prayers, that we would hang on to the gospel, that we would believe that God would help us to do so. So I encourage you, take Paul's example here. Pray this prayer for yourself and those you love. Next, we need not be anxious about the known or unknown. It's one thing whenever we can... In, in full awareness, look at the problems that are in front of us. That's hard, though, isn't it? When you're in the midst of tragedy, especially if it's something that you feared the worst and it has come true, it's, it's, it's difficult, to say the least, to deal with such a thing. Sometimes for us, the, the worst thing is the unknown, worrying about what's coming next. Most of us, if we're being honest, are racked by anxiety. But if Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14-19 through 19 are true, we need not fear the known or the unknown. Now, when it comes, or the fear of it comes, it's natural to be worried. But where do you take your anxiety? You take them to the one who made you, the one who lives inside you with strength, and the one who gave himself for you. And you remember that despite the fact that your eyes tell you otherwise that it's all going to be okay for you. Now, it might not feel okay. You might not know when it's going to be all okay. But the verdict is in on those for whom Christ has died. The judgment has already been handed down. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you will be okay. You might be poor. You might mourn. You might suffer great loss. A lot of your dreams might not come true And you might die in obscurity, the great horror of all American thinking. But you will be okay. And the known and the unknown will not be the final verdict. Thirdly, we must not bow to inferior gods. Never give them our hearts. God died for you. God the Father intended it to happen. God the Spirit gave you the faith to believe. Why would you bow to inferior gods, lowercase g? And even if you've grown up in a Christian context and you can't conceive of worshiping some other Hindu god or Muslim god or ancient Canaanite god like the Israelites struggled with, you have your own lower g gods, your cars, your houses, your jobs, your reputation, your money. But haven't we been around long enough most of us now, we've seen that those lowercase g gods always fall short every single time. We must not bow to inferior gods. Never give them our hearts. Fourthly, we need not struggle with identity issues for being a child of God is our only identity that ultimately matters. I could spend two hours talking about this. We all do this. We all posture. What defines you? You good at Soccer? Are you a successful businessman? Are you a nurturing mother who cuts the crusts off her children's bread and puts kiwi in the shape of hearts in their boxes because you'd never give them a lunchable because a lunchable might destroy their life by the span of one minute whenever they're 90? What do you find your identity in? Motherhood, fatherhood, occupation, wealth? Intellect? What we do typically whenever we do this is we're comparing ourselves to everybody around us. And we should be comparing ourselves to God. And we know we fall short, but what did God do? He sent his son to take our place. Why do we need to struggle with identity issues? Our identity is that we are sons and daughters of God. Anything else is is always going to disappoint and fall short. So we need not struggle with identity issues. And one of the best things that we can do for each other, if I'm being honest, is to very carefully but discerningly Help each other see when we're doing this. Those are ouch moments, but we all do it. But if our righteousness is in Jesus and not in ourselves, we can listen when our brother or sister tells us that we're struggling with identity issues. If you'd like to learn how to do that better, ask one of the other elders. Fifthly, we'll find light when the darkness is oppressive. I don't know where our country's headed at least in the short term. I know where it's headed in the long term. I know where the world is headed in the long term, but in the short term, as we live here, it's dark. And darkness seems to get worse. I think every generation says that. The darkness will come. It'll come from inside of our families. It'll come from our neighborhoods. It'll come from our nation. It'll come from the world. When the darkness is oppressive, and maybe this is Easier to detect when it's inside. A lot of us struggle with with depression, whether low level or high. How do you make it? At the end of the story is that you will be a son and daughter experiencing the fullness of your inheritance with Jesus the Son. A little bit of temporary darkness will not destroy you. So I tell you, If God the Father and the Spirit and the Son have loved you to this degree, the darkness will not overcome you. Next, we'll repent willingly without posturing. This means that we don't have to hide from our sin. We don't make ourselves right with God anyway. Jesus does. So you don't have to hide. Bring your sin out into the light. Take it out of the darkness and deal with it honestly. And willingly. A couple more. We'll love one another fervently, sacrificially, patiently. We're going to talk more about this in chapters four through six. Chapters four through six, in many ways, could be defined by the word "love." But before Paul tells us how we should love one another, what does he tell us in chapters one through three? How God loves us. The rooting and grounding in love that we see in verse 17 begins, is initiated by God who is love, but it comes down to us who must love this way as we live with one another. If God forgave you and loved you this way, he loved you fervently. He didn't give up on his plan despite our sinfulness. He loved you sacrificially because he sent his son, and he loves you patiently because he knows you're still a sinner. How much more should we love this way? And he will enable it. And lastly for today will be courageous on mission. The world needs to hear this message, my friends. This is their only hope. The gospel of self-esteem and self-help will not save anyone. The gospel of Jesus is the only hope for the world. And if that's true, and God has loved us this way, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, and he holds our lives in his hands, will be courageous on mission. We could talk about more, but... Those are some implications that I think come out of this text. There's ways that we can help you on your journey of faith, no matter where you find yourself today. Please let us help you. That's why we're here. No of us have this. None of us really have this all figured out. But we're trying. We're learning. We're we're depending day by day more and more upon the gospel of Jesus. And so, as we've said today, Paul has been driving to the point in the text where he sums up his thoughts by saying, "God loves." Us. And so I say to you, God loves you, and that is the most profound thought that has ever been put down on paper or ever spoken, but it is true. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now take these words and give us strength to believe them, that we being rooted and grounded in love may know this this knowledge that surpasses human reason, to believe that Jesus who sacrificed himself for us has brought us back to the Father and we are loved by the eternal creator and savior of humanity. Help us to believe this. Ground us and root us in the truth of the gospel. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing.